Welcome back to Chatting Rabbis. Eliezer Zalmanov in Munster, Indiana. Mendy Khetrik from Istanbul, Turkey. And congratulations, Mendy, on your upgrade, on your new microphone. And uh, the clarity of our audio is definitely an indication of the progress that our podcast has been making. God willing, uh, to bigger and greater things from here on. So this podcast is making waves, and making waves uh, over the internet is a good thing. People get to uh, to know, to learn um, different people, different shluchim, different Chabad rabbis. You know, at the end of the day, uh, we're not all the same. We all have our own ways of approaching uh, life, approaching our work. Our communities are different. Our personalities are different. Our views may be different. Absolutely. That's something that I've been tell, telling a lot of people ever since we had the uh, controversial episode a few weeks ago. People wanted to know how I handle speaking to someone that I disagree with. First of all, I don't disagree with you all the time, a lot of the time, not all the time, definitely not most of the time. But more importantly, I, I feel that I'm mature enough and I think that you're mature enough and uh, hopefully most of our listeners are mature enough to listen to an opinion that you don't necessarily agree with and you don't necessarily see eye to eye with and still learn something from it learn something from the experience learn something from the conversation and maybe even have your mind changed you know that's uh, that's a big deal that uh, some people are afraid that when you listen to an opinion that's different than yours that your mind will be changed but there's nothing wrong because if the other person's position is convincing enough then there's no shame in altering and, 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 and or maybe tweaking, if not changing completely, your initial position. Nothing wrong with that. And I'm not out to change anybody's position, of course, but the thing is that I believe that as we grow older and as we mature in all our ways, we also understand that uh, things that are black and white also have some other uh, tones of or color inside. And uh, when a child uh, learns something, he learns it in a way that this black and white do and don't. And when you are older, while you keep the do's and don'ts, you also learn of the beautiful edges which are, which are around the do's and the beautiful edges which are around the don'ts. And you also understand and you're mature enough to understand that it's not just two sides. It's a whole canvas full of color and full of things. And there's a lot, there's a lot of room to, uh, to understand, to think, to feel. And it's not just one way or the highway. There are many, many country ways on the way. And in practical halachic terminology, we use the, uh, the phrase, the unwritten volume of Shulchan Aruch. The Code of Jewish Law has uh, a set amount of written, published volumes. Then there's the unspoken volume or the unwritten volume, the volume that talks about how to behave and how to be a mensch and how to use common sense. And, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, um, common sense is maybe not as common. And uh, our, our goal with this podcast, hopefully, is to share some common sense, even the, even if we're not the, the brightest and the most intelligent people on the planet. But given this tool to have a conversation and to talk and to share views and opposing views and agreeing views and, um, and controversial views helps people think and helps people appreciate the common sense that exists in other areas of, of thought and in, in intellectual discussion. You know, there's also, you know, I probably figured you didn't want to speak about it, but still, let's uh, just two more words about this, uh, this issue. There, there is something about, you know, when, when you are young and you speak about your kids and how you're going to educate your kids, you have your way set out. And then time goes on and kids grow and kids have their, a mind of their, own, of their own and every child is different and you realize that the rules and the setup that you made up in the beginning that this is how things are going to go, 
don't actually fit to every child because every child is different, every situation is different. And as very, very much so is for every person of us, even though we all work on the goal of, uh, of strengthening Yiddishkeit and bringing the Rebbe's message of love to the entire world, we are all mandated with bringing that message with our with our way of understanding, knowledge, and connection to people and to ourselves. And it just is this way that we're all going to have very, very different ways of to approach it. And isn't this befitting to the story, to the days that we are standing right now, the days of Sfirat Omer, the counting of the Omer, in which we mourn the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva who had differing views on how to uh, implement the rule, the, the, the general rule of Rabbi Akiva that uh, love your fellow is the main principle of the Torah. Right, and what's fascinating about that is that their whole fight was, their whole the discord among Rabbi Akiva's students was how to best implement the mitzvah to love your fellow as yourself. Exactly, this is how the Rabbi You, th- you think you're having Avas Yisrael? I'll show you how to have Avas Yisrael. That's exactly, exactly the point, and the, which is exactly why we have to be so extra careful on how we express ourselves. We have to be so extra careful as being the students of the Rebbe, as being those who are continuing and following in the Rebbe's footsteps to make sure that we who were taught by the Rebbe to love a fellow Jew, it also includes to love a fellow Hasid, a fellow Shaliach, a fellow uh, student of the Rebbe who has a different way of... Uh, expressing that uh, message of the Rebbe. I, I re- was re- recently had a conversation with a family member of mine about how, in theory, we're all non-judgmental. We're accepting, we love everybody, we include everybody. Chabad is inclusive to any type of Jew. But the truth is that we probably are the most judgmental group of people that exist for, within ourselves. Yes, for people that are not necessarily part of our immediate circle, we'll be less judgmental and we'll be welcoming to non-religious Jews and we'll be welcoming to uh, people in our Chabad houses and in our communities and in other communities. But when it comes to our immediate circle, we have a much harder time not being judgmental. How dare that he say this? How dare he behave like this? How dare he think like that? How, uh, how dare he operate his institution, his Chabad house, or his school, or his yeshiva in this particular way that, we dis- that I disagree with? We're, we're, we're pretty judgmental, which I guess is why we have to constantly remind ourselves, and we sometimes uh, deni- in denial to a point, and we keep reminding ourselves that we're so un- not judgmental, and we're, we're so open, and we're so welcoming, and we're so... Uh, tolerant because maybe inherently we're, we're not. Inherently, we m- would much prefer to have everybody be exactly like us and have everybody fit a very specific mold in the way that we would want it to be. But uh, at the end of the day, the, the Rebbe's message was clear that, like you said, just because someone disagrees with you and someone uh, interprets the Rebbe's message differently than you has to be given the same level of respect and dignity that you would give to someone who is not yet religious. You know, there's the famous um, axiom of uh, Yisrael, Hagam Shechata Yisrael, who a Jew, even though he sins, is still a Jew. And within uh, Chabad, maybe we need to remind ourselves that Yisrael, Hagam Shechata Yisrael, who a Jew who doesn't sin, which, which basically means someone who is a, a typical religious Jew also needs to be treated with dignity and respect, the same dignity and respect we would uh, offer to a, a non-religious Jew who we would 
perhaps view as our primary target of our outreach efforts, if we can call it that. That's right. That's right. And uh, it definitely is uh, sometimes this way. And especially in some uh, elements of people who feel very, very close to uh, safeguarding the message of the Rebbe, and they feel that it has to be in only the way that it is their, uh, their interpretation and their implementation. And we should be very, very careful and uh, to remember the message, to remember to stay on course and not to move on, not to move away, not to right, not to left, but to have our eyes open and embracing eyes open. Anyway, I just came back from we were recording this on Wednesday because we just had a wonderful, wonderful conference of Chabad rabbis from what we call small countries. It's not really small countries, but Chabad rabbis from countries that have less than five Chabad representatives in a country from Europe and Africa. That's an interesting uh, qualification. Exactly. So but the, the thing is that if you have more than Chabad rabbis, you can have your own conference. Meaning if, it's, if a country has more than five Chabad uh, representatives, then that country will just have its own conference. Exactly. So they don't have to have a conference. So this is a conference for uh, rabbis, Chabad rabbis from countries that have only one or two or three or four or five Chabad rabbis that so they could all come together and have a conference once every two, three years. We had a conference here. Uh, the previous one was pre-COVID uh, here in Istanbul, Turkey. The one before that was in Girona, Spain. And now it is the third conference of such. in um, And we had it in uh, Lisbon or in Kashkaish in Portugal. We, we gathered in the really, really wonderful, wonderful Casa Chabad in Kashkaish, led by uh, Rabbi Eli and Rebetzin Razel Rosenfeld. It's really, an, I was so impressed by the, that Chabad house. The, the conference was for European uh, Chabad rabbis? European and African and Middle Eastern Chabad rabbis. So we had the Europe, Middle East, and Africa, but that did not include uh, the countries of Italy, Switzerland, Germany, Holland, France, England, uh, and all these countries that have, or South Africa, or Israel, that have, uh, you know, their own regional conferences. Right. I saw there was there, there was a similar conference going on at the same time in France for for French shluchim. That's right. In Paris, and actually, specifically for. Paris Shluchim, some 200 of them. Um, and, and this was a conference from uh, rabbis from as far away as uh, Mauritius to Ghana, Uganda, Ivory Coast, Congo, Angola, and then uh, from, the, from the United Arab Emirates, from Turkey, from Cyprus, from North Cyprus, and all over Europe, little countries from Montenegro to Denmark. Not little countries, but uh, not very strong on the Chabad presence. Is- isolated is probably the best way to put it. That's uh, that's how we, we like to call it, uh, small town. Uh, Jewishly isolated, yes, because when you have a Chabad, Chabad rabbi from Reykjavik, Iceland, I can't get more isolated than that, you know. So it was in, in, in Lisbon, they have, they have a big Chabad house there? They have a beautiful Chabad house, not in Lisbon itself, but in Kashkaish, which is a suburb of Lisbon. And they have really a, a wonderful, wonderful Chabad house, with a, which ha- so many things impressed me about the Chabad house of Rabbi, Rose, Rabbi and Robertson Rosenfeld. And as a person who loves books, I was most impressed by his library. He has a library which is focused and based on the great sages that lived in Portugal. It's a targeted collection. Exactly. Targeted collection worth uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars because he has the first print 
uh, of uh, the first book that was ever printed in Portugal with Ramban and the Torah was printed uh, before the, the, the explosion from Spain. Nachmanadi's commentary. Nachmanadi's commentaries and the Torah. Uh, it was printed in 1489. Um, he has uh, the books of the Abarbanel and he has the books of, uh, of Rabbi Avram Zakuto and he has the books of Rabbi Yitzchak Seba and he has every single book that was printed, written about the Jewish community of, uh, of Portugal by great sages who came, born in Portugal, lived in Portugal, lived through Portugal. It's a co- collection of manuscripts, collection of, and it's all on display. And it's, first of all, for me as a, as a lover of book. I was going to say, now, now I understand why you, you so enjoyed your trip there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, yeah, I, I was like out of my, blown out of my mind to see that, the, those books, to see those things. It was really an unbelievable experience. But more than that, it shows, many times people say, oh, the Chabad rabbi, you're a foreigner to this community. And they write in a way. Look, I'm an Ashkenazi rabbi living in Turkey. Hasn't been an Ashkenazi rabbi here since Rabbi Dr. David Shagamakos lived here and passed away in 1943. Community is 98% uh, descendant of Sephardic or Romaniot Jews. And here comes the Chabad rabbi. In the beginning, people used to say, this, this, this rabbi and his wife are here to Ashkenazify the local Jewish community. It's very, very far from uh, from the truth, but that was the impression. Slowly, slowly, you know, also because of my uh, interest in the Jewish customs and preserving of Jewish customs and Jewish lifestyle. So I, I learned Ladino and, you know, I connected uh, to very, very strongly to the local Jewish mindset of halacha, halachic mindset and customs and it also affects very much the way I you know, look at the broader Jewish world. So when I see that there's another fellow Chabad rabbi who really really connects to the roots and uh, sort of the, the DNA map, the spiritual DNA of the country and with that you are you strengthen and you're empowering Jews around you I think it is really 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 wonderful are the Jews in Portugal today descendants of the original Portuguese Jews or not because most of them were expelled uh, during the Inquisition it's quite interesting because I, I actually visited Portugal as part as a rabbinical student it's part part of what we call Merkashlichis in 1999, and I spent two, three weeks in Portugal with my friend Rabbi uh, Sholem Goldschmidt today of Philadelphia. I met some of the people that I met in 1999 there, some of the Ashkenazi Jews who've lived there. Now, Jews were, were expelled out of uh, Portugal in 1497, so there were no people who, who can uh, really, really trace themselves today to those Jews who were there before. But the, the, the history of Jews in Portugal is a very sad history because Jews were forcedly converted to, uh, to Christianity. They say that some 40% of Portuguese citizens have, have some Jewish ancestry. Um, so many people definitely harbor some uh, Jewish DNA, but it's very hard to detect and, uh, you know, to make sure that it's all proper, we you know. But, uh, and there's many Sephardic Jews, Jews who came back to Portugal in the past hundred years uh, from uh, from Gibraltar, or from Morocco, or from Tunisia, but also Ashkenazi Jews, Jews who've come there to find refuge uh, from the war and during the war years. My point was that the community is not inherently 
Sephardic um, and an Ashkenazi rabbi would be considered a foreigner, which is kind of the situation that you're facing in Istanbul, that the community has been there for, for hundreds of years and, and thousands of years even. So, yeah, I guess, I guess the, uh, the concept is the same, that a Chabad rabbi coming into the community is usually going to be a sore thumb for some people, but probably different than the, in the exact context that is the, uh, as it is by you. Wouldn't you say? Yes, but still, you know, even when you live, uh, it's less so in the United States because in America you don't really have much of that historical feeling and connection to the land. But still, even in, in any country in Europe where Jews have lived for so many years, and even if you're a newcomer or it's a new community, you try to build on that historic connection. And people uh, really, really feel that connection. Look, the Jews of Istanbul, for example, most of them have been here for 500 years. Men, many of them have been here from before, but they're also still a great part of Jews who've come here from other surrounding countries, have come into Turkey, and uh, within a generation or two, uh, really, really feel part of this historic Jewish community of Turkey. Um, Jews who moved from uh, from Istanbul to Izmir, and after, in the beginning, have some affinity with the Jews of Istanbul, and after some years, feel very closely to, to the heritage of the Jews of Izmir. You're right that in America you don't have that as much, or not even close to that type of connection to the land or to the city or to the location. But you do see it a little bit. Jews that have been living in certain regions of, of the United States, for example, or, or certain states or certain cities, do feel an, an affinity to it, they, to their location. You see that the most in, uh, in a, I mean, this obviously this is a, a trivial matter, but in the sports teams that people are fans of. If you root for a, a certain baseball team or a football team or a basketball team, I guess uh, on a lighter note, um, when you see shluchim, such as myself, who come from one city and then move to another city to set up a Chabad house, we ourselves may still be uh, fans of the teams of our hometowns, but our children become sports fans of the local teams. And that sometimes makes for interesting dinner table conversation, sometimes very heated, but... Uh, that's uh, that's on a, on, a, on a lighter and a less uh, significant matter. But the, the concept exists that you're living somewhere, you feel an affinity, you feel a closeness, you feel some kind of tie to the actual location that you're in. And the same goes for communities in our, in our community here in Northwest Indiana. Again, not nearly as much as it, is, it would be in a European community, but we have people that their families have been here for three, four generations, uh, probably around 100 years or so. And uh, they, they feel that anybody that uh, came here in the last 20, 30, or even 50 years are outsiders. A funny story, I uh, recently discovered that a whole uh, segment of the Jewish community in Northwest Indiana, uh, which came he here from Europe in 1910, so over 100 years ago. So the people that their parents came back then in 1910 are already senior citizens in their 80s and 90s. But when their parents came, a whole segment came from the city of Shedrin, mm -hmm. which, which is where, where our uh, family has roots in, and it was a very large Chabad community for many years, going back to the times of the, uh, the Tzemach Tzedek. There was also obviously the uh, the split down the down the middle between the uh, Hasidim that were in that town and the Maskilim, the en Enlightenment. So I, I don't know who uh, or where these local Jews from Northwest Indiana descended from, either from the Hasidim or from the Maskilim, 
But uh, interestingly, I, I was talking to one person, and he said, yeah, my, uh, my, my father came from a city, you probably never heard of it, a city in Belarus called Shedrin. I said, not only did I hear of it, my great-grandfather was the rabbi of Shedrin in the 1920s. The one that you're named after. The one that I'm named after, exactly. So he says, yeah, but my, my father left already in 1910, so he wouldn't have known your great-grandfather. Right. In, uh, so anyway, I was repeating that story to someone else, unrelated. A few days later, I was talking to someone that says, you know, I was talking to Mr. Kaplan, and he tells me that his father came from the city of Shedrin, like my great-grandfather. So this lady says, yeah, of course, my father was from Shedrin too. But, uh, you know, they've, they've, but they've been here for over 100 years, and they feel like anybody that, uh, that moves in and sets up shop afterwards is somewhat of an outsider. But I want to tell you, speak about one uh, very, very special individual who was at this conference, Rabbi Moshe Kotlarski. He was really, really special. If you know, Rabbi Kotlarski is a person who was, uh, this year went through a very, very serious challenge, uh, health challenge, very, very difficult for him to, uh, to travel these days. But he came to this conference and he spent two, three days with everybody. And his individual care and his individual attention, very, very quick on solution, and help in, in, in every matters of, of helping solve, uh, you know, for, for a rabbi who lives uh, um, in a, what we call an isolated community and sometimes they have issues, health issues and psychological issues and issues between the rabbi and the rabbitson and issues of education. And he was there to sit with people and give them advice and give them from his life experience. And sometimes they give a few dollars to help, uh, you know, schmear the redl, as we say, you know, to put some oil to the to the wheels so they could uh, grease the wheels so it could be less friction. And so many, so many things which I witnessed so, from so close of his really, really love and care of bringing the Rebbe's message in a really selfless, uh, putting himself on a side for the point of doing the right thing and doing the good thing and making the world a better place. It's amazing that he made the trip. I mean, uh, given his health issues, and thank God he's uh, he's recovering and he's doing better. But uh, given his health issues, it's uh, amazing that he got onto a plane and traveled across the Atlantic to the Kinos. It definitely speaks to his commitment to the Shluchim, or uh, the Shluchim specifically of that region. But really, he is, he's, his commitment to Shluchim everywhere. He, he does attend the regional Kinosim, the regional conferences, usually around the United States throughout the summer. The last uh, couple of years, he didn't attend because of his health issues. But uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, he'll be able to get back on, uh, get back in the saddle, so to speak, and, and, and be there. Because he does offer a lot of inspiration and, uh, and drive and a reminder of who and what we represent, uh, he himself being an extremely devoted chassid of the Rebbe. And really the only thing that he that he wants to see in the world is the Rebbe's message to be shared far and wide and for the shluchim to have all the support that they need in order to be able to perpetuate the Rebbe's message. That uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's nice to see it on paper, but when you see it in person and when Rebbe Katlarski shows up at your regional kinos, it, 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 it's a flesh and blood reminder of of the mission that we were all entrusted with. And of course, like you said, it doesn't hurt that he, he puts his money where his mouth is and he fundraises uh, extraordinary amounts of money for uh, the support of Shluchim, Not, nothing for himself, always for the greater cause and for uh, creating a fund for this and a fund for that and send Shluchim a check for Pesach and send Shluchim a check for uh, Simcha. We're, we're having a bar mitzvah coming up soon and we just got a very nice check from his Karen Shluchim, his Shluchim fund that supports uh, personal Simchas for, for Shluchim. Just... Uh, amazing, an amazing commitment to the global ent enterprise of shlichus, but with the 
stated purpose and the only purpose of bringing the Rebbe's message mm -hmm. to the world, and we can all learn a lot from him. Uh, I guess I guess now would be an appropriate time to uh, to give him our blessing that he should he should have much health and uh, gesund and nachas and parnasa and uh, live many more happy years, seeing the fruits of his labor continue to flourish throughout the world. Amen, amen. So as we spoke about the connection to history, so let me add two more anecdotes that we had uh, throughout the, this uh, thing. First of all, it is the fact that all of us, all the shluchim, we went to Lisbon from Kashkaish. We went to the same pier on which, from where the Rebbe, our Rebbe, has uh, departed Europe during the war. The Rebbe was in Portugal, and he went on, to the, on a boat from Portugal, crossed the Atlantic uh, during the war, and arrived in the United States on Chofche Sivan, on the 28th of Sivan. During the, uh, while we were on the, on the boat, we had the mayor of Lisbon come and tell us, uh, give us a message of Lekatchila Ariber in his own words. These, these are the words that he used. And he said that, uh, he spoke about the fact that the Rebbe has left uh, Europe on, from Portugal and after 11 days arrived in the, on the shores of the United States. So uh, definitely uh, it was a, a heartwarming and a surprise to hear that from the mayor of Lisbon. That could have been more perfect if the kinos would have been postponed uh, six weeks or so to the middle of Sivan for the <laughs> date that, there actually, uh, that the boat actually left their port. Right, right. But that's uh, quite interesting. So this was one thing and... Uh, the mayor of uh, Portugal of, of Lisbon, former commissioner in the European Union, was quite interesting. Another thing is that we all gathered at the at the synagogue of uh, of Lisbon of Lisboa, uh, Shari Tikva synagogue was built some 130 years ago, and we met there with the rabbi of Lisbon, Rabbi Reuven Suisa, and me being the Ladino rabbi, so to speak, they asked me to to speak to sing some Ladino songs, uh, so. The rabbi from Istanbul, the Ashkenazi rabbi from Istanbul, Chabad rabbi from Istanbul, together with uh, some uh, 50 uh, Chabad rabbinical teams, because by us it's not just a rabbi, it's a rabbi and the Rebetzin, it's a rabbinical team, and we're all singing together, Avram Avidnu, Padre Querido, Luz de Israel. And Loaremos uh, Amues Odios. Did you sing Echad uh, Miodeh uh, that we spoke about a few weeks ago? Or Chad uh, Gadia? No, did not sing Chad Gadia this time, but did sing En Kelokeinu. En Kelokeinu, En Kadoneinu, En Kemalkeinu, En Kemoshienu. Non como esto Dios, non como esto Señor, non como esto Rey, non como esto Salvador. There's a, uh, a Sephardic shul in Indianapolis that uh, was established by actual Spanish Jews probably 152 years, 200 years ago. And uh, they're Sephardic, in, in, almost in name only. Obviously, the Nusach that they daven is completely uh, Nusach Sephardi. But the one song that they sing in Ladino is at Enkelokeno. So uh, once, when, when I'm there for a, for a Shabbos or something and I daven there, I, that, that tune is familiar. It's interesting that uh, they're the oldest Orthodox congregation today in the state of Indiana. There are a lot of other Orthodox shuls that were established later on, but this Sephardic shul in the middle of Indianapolis has been around for almost 200 years. So, uh, listen, being back to Portugal, reconnecting to the, to the past, bridging it to the future, definitely a good message for all of us. 100%. Very good. Good talking to you, Mendy. We'll catch up again next week. God willing. Take care. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye.